take a few moments and just welcome those who join us each and every Sunday that uh, are not a part of our congregation here in the room. We have our folks that join us at the Marina campus. Uh, we have all of our folks at the Padre campus. And then, of course, all of you join us online. And then the inmates at Soledad Correctional Facilities and those of you in the county jail. So let's all give them a big warm compass welcome today. And thank you all for joining with us this morning. You know, you and I are living through uh, what I would call a grand narrative. It's the grand narrative in the story of God and his interaction with his creation. And if you think about it, our life literally in that grand narrative is nothing more than a snapshot in comparison to the full timeline of God. The book of James explains it this way, your life is, it's like a morning fog. Uh, it's here for a little while and then it's gone. Those of us who live in Marina understand that very well. But how do we take our life and put it into a greater context? That's really the challenge for us. I mean, we can only imagine uh, one day our heavenly reunion in eternity with family and friends and the heroes of faith as we, we gather for one of heaven's finest hours. God's plan of redemption will be complete as the original created order is finally restored. But in order to understand the future, we need to go back. Genesis 1.1 tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And according to the Bible, the finality of God's new creation was what? Was Adam and Eve, humanity. The original couple, according to the Bible, enjoyed a beautiful relationship with God. In God's presence, there was no distractions. There were no barriers. There was no pretense. No pretending. Imagine that. This word pretense is kind of interesting because pre means before. Think of a pregame activity. And the word tense is actually where we get the word tendon from, to be stretching out. So it's to stretch out something before something else, hide behind a mask to pretend. They didn't have to do that in the original creation story. They just had a relationship with God, pure and simple. But as we know, the Bible explains to us that story, unfortunately, was broken by their disobedience. And Adam and Eve were banned from the garden, and the presence of God was cut off from them, and also their descendants, which is you and I. At that moment, evil thought it had won, yet the love of God would never allow that to happen. And so throughout the pages of the Bible, we read a story, and it's a story of God and his plan of redemption. And it's this great meta-narrative that is returning the presence of God to his creation. That's you and me. And the story has four scenes to it. We have the garden, which we just talked about. We have the Old Testament. We have the New Testament. And then we have our eventual presence of God in heaven. So in the garden, humanity, as we said, had a perfect relationship with God. In the Old Testament, we understand God's presence was connected through a tabernacle or through a temple. And in the New Testament, it changed because Jesus, as God incarnate, was with humanity in a specific place for a specific time. And while Jesus was on earth during the days of the New Testament scriptures, Jesus provided for all of humanity what I call a game-changing promise. Would you like to know what it is? Would you like to know what it is? <laughs> That's good. Excellent. It's too early. It's the nine o'clock service, huh? Let's take a look. John chapter 14. Here it is. 
Jesus says, but the helper, so in case you want to know who that is, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And the book of Acts tells us the story of the presence of God through the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. And that's where you and I are still today. For 2,000 years, that's what's been happening. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 7, he said, it's best for you that I do go away, because if I don't, then the advocate, the Holy Spirit, won't come. But if I do go away, then I will send him to you. I will send him to you. What a great promise. And that's where we are today in our 316 verse. If you're new to us, we've been in the middle of a 10-part series. This is week number six of taking a look at 10, 316 verses in the Bible. Everybody knows John 316, and so we found nine others just like it that teach us something about God. This particular 316 verse today will unpack a meaning behind a simple question by the Apostle Paul. Yet packed into this one simple question are three dynamic truths. And I believe that these three truths will help you to understand three elements of God's presence that will, if applied to your life, radically change the perspective of your Christian life. Here's the 316 verse up on the screen. 1 Corinthians 316. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? You are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. So from this simple question, we first discover that as a believer, we should have a great spiritual confidence, a great spiritual confidence. If you're taking notes, go ahead and fill that in up on the screen. Do you not know? That's a great question, isn't it? Some translations say, are you still ignorant? Are you not aware? Don't you know what happened? God did something special. You should have a great spiritual confidence. Norman Vincent Peale was one of the most sought-after speakers uh, in the 20th century. And shortly before his uh, passing, he spoke for his good friend, Pastor Robert Schuller, uh, at the Crystal Cathedral down in Anaheim, California. Well, Schuller began his introduction by saying, I want to introduce to you today the most dynamic person you'll ever meet in your entire life. He's exciting and positive and winsome. He can reach down inside of you more deeply than anyone else you have ever known before. He'll give you self-confidence and, and courage and a whole lot of other things you've always wanted but you've never had. Peel was astonished. I mean, he had never been introduced like this before. How could he possibly respond to this type of an introduction? And as he was trying to think of some sort of response, he heard Schuler continue. The person of whom I'm speaking of, of course, is Jesus Christ. And here to tell you all about him is my good friend, Norm. You know, in our natural life, it's easy to have confidence when people recognize our achievements. Isn't that true? But I found when it comes to our spiritual life, we're not always so confident. One of the more perplexing conditions that I encounter with Christians is this lack of confidence in their walk with Christ. More specifically, as it relates to knowing and understanding and sensing and feeling the presence of God in their day-to-day -day life. That's what I interact with as a pastor. 
So the question is, how do we know that God's presence actually stays with us? Well, check out what uh, 1 John 4.13 tells us. John reminds us that we know that we abide in him, in Christ, and he in us because he has what? Given us the Holy Spirit. This word abide is pronounced meno, and it means to remain somewhere or to continue to be. It's kind of like when your relatives come over for the holidays and they don't go home. They just continue to be. In other words, when it talks about a spiritual reality, what we're understanding here is that uh, we don't go to a certain place at a certain time to experience God's presence. The days of God's presence dwelling in a building are over. Isn't that interesting? You see, his spirit now abides in us as Christians. His spirit resides with us, and he provides us with a confidence in his presence. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, the Bible explains it this way. You heard and believed the message of the truth. The good news that he has what? Saved you. He's made you into a new person. He's rescued you out of the old life. You no longer think the way you used to. You become a new creation. That's the good news. And in him you were what? Sealed with the Holy Spirit who he promised. Another translation says it this way. You believe in Christ and God put his stamp of ownership on you by giving you the Holy Spirit that he had promised. You see, friend, if you're here today and you're a Christian, the Bible says you have been sealed. You have been stamped by God in essence as his property. Now, this is interesting because in the case of this letter in, to the Ephesians that we're looking at right here, Paul was communicating to the people that they, in essence, were God's cargo. They were God's cargo. Paul uses a, a, a word here that means to set a mark upon by the impress of a seal or a stamp. Where are we getting this from? Well, back in the ancient days when Paul wrote this, the cities of Ephesus and Corinth were major port cities in the Aegean Sea. They were cities that were strategically located between the trade routes of Rome and the Far East. Cargo ships and merchants would come into these port cities, much like Los Angeles and San Francisco were back in the day. And if you take our history back, even Monterey was a major port city. These cargo ships and merchants would come from all over the world to these ports. And when the cargo would arrive, the trades were made. And the new owners in Rome would then stamp the cargo. So when it was put on a new ship and it went from Ephesus or Corinth around to Rome, when the new owners saw the cargo come in, they would know, that's mine. I own that piece. That's mine. It belongs to me. And that's what Paul's saying happens to us spiritually. God seals us with the Holy Spirit. He, he puts a, a stamp upon you and on your journey to heaven. It lets you the whole world, and everything in heaven and hell know that you belong to God. And when you arrive in heaven one day, the owner, God, knows you belong to him. That's the seal of the Holy Spirit. Look at this verse in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. He says, he has identified us as his own by doing what? By placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as a first installment that guarantees everything he has promised us. If you ever bought a car, sometimes you need to put down a down payment. If you ever bought a house, you have to put up earnest money, right? It's the first installment. You see, the Holy Spirit that you and I experience on this planet is just the deposit. He's the guarantee of what's to come. 
So here on earth, we gain just a small deposit of one day what will be God's full presence, when God will restore all things back to perfection. And so because of that, this first point's teaching us that you and I should have great confidence in our daily walk with Christ. Because you, if you're a Christian, belong to him. You are cargo on your way home. So I think it's time for us to stand up and walk a little taller. Broad shoulders and some strength in your step. We represent Christ in this world. We have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And there is nothing in heaven and earth that could stop us from continuing to follow Christ. If you think about it, this old world is nothing more than an old cargo ship traveling from port to port, just trading its goods. And one day that old port, that old ship will deteriorate into nothing. The real excitement is when we arrive at home and our Heavenly Father says, he belongs to me. That's my cargo. That's the first truth. Okay, the second truth that we learn about God's presence when we uh, are encouraged to develop, if we want more of God's presence, then we are encouraged to develop disciplines in our life. We have a great spiritual discipline, a great spiritual discipline. So do you not know that you are God's temple. You are God's temple. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Now, when we use this word discipline, there's a, we gotta do a little definition here. When we use the word discipline, are we talking about being uh, disciplined for something that we've done wrong? Or are we talking about uh, creating a life that uh, keeps us in a healthy place spiritually, right? So some people think that God's after them to discipline them for something bad they've done. And what they do in that case is they hide from God because they're afraid. The problem with that is in the hiding, they're completely missing out on God's presence. It happened in the garden, going back to the original story. Do you remember what Adam and Eve did immediately after they disobeyed God? The Bible says they hid from God. Here it is in the scriptures in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. And Adam said to God, I heard the sound of you, God, in the garden, and I was afraid of you. So I hid. I hid myself. And unfortunately, people have been hiding from God ever since. You may be here today, and you may be hiding from God from something you've done. Can I want to tell you today that you can come out from hiding, and God can restore that relationship with you? He'll forgive you. All you have to do is ask. All you have to do is repent and say, God, I'm sorry. I got caught up in something. I, I misaligned something. I was selfish, or whatever the case may be, and say, God, would you please forgive me? And God will forgive you, and he will restore you, and you can have his presence again. The days of hiding are over. But getting back to this second part of our 316 verse, we find a direct statement from Paul, as if it's a matter of fact. He says, you are God's temple. Maybe you caught that in your notes. Go ahead and underline that or circle that. What Paul means here is that you're not just a piece of cargo sitting at the bottom of a ship awaiting to arrive at a home port someday in the future, which we just talked about. But he wants to expand the idea a little bit and say, you're a member of God's family. And if that's the case as a follower of Christ, then your life should reflect Christ. And that reflection should show something. It shouldn't be a mirror that's foggy or a mirror that's smudged that can't produce a reflection. It should be a, a clear mirror, something that reflects what it's uh, up against. And so the same thing with Christ. If we're a follower of Christ, we should be a, a, a clear mirror. We're, we're reflecting the image of Christ to the world. One of my favorite quotes is from a, a, one of the early church fathers. His name is Tertullian. He was in North Africa, and he lived from 150 A.D. to about 200 A.D. And here's what he said. He said, you can judge the quality of their faith or someone's faith from the way they behave. 
Discipline is an index to doctrine. Interesting, isn't it? Index just means a sign or an indicator or a guide. And that's what Paul's getting at here. Just like the temple in Jerusalem was built and designed to house the presence of God, now that the temple is gone, it's been destroyed, you and I have been built and designed to house the presence of God in our life. And if we're going to have God's presence inside us, then we should be something that's set aside for God's presence. Put some discipline into our life. Here's a good question for you to consider. Have you ever wanted to experience God's presence more in your life? I'm sure most of us all here would agree with that. Well, I think it starts with putting some spiritual disciplines in your life. What do I mean by that? Consider these illustrations. Loose strings provide no musical notes. Did you know that? It's not until you attach their ends that the piano or the harp or the violin begins to make music. You have to put some boundaries around that string. Free steam, it drives no machine. But if you uh, connect it and confine it with a piston and a turbine, it makes an engine run. How about an unconstrained river? It drives no turbines and creates no electricity. But if you control a river, you generate sufficient power to light a great city. You see, in a similar way, our lives must be disciplined if we want to maximize God's presence in our life. This is what Paul was teaching the Ephesians. If you want to experience more of God's presence, he writes this in Ephesians 4.30. Remember, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve him. He reminded the believers in Thessalonica, do not extinguish the Spirit. Those are two big passages, aren't they? Don't grieve and don't extinguish God. What do they teach us? These two passages teach us that we can grieve and we can extinguish the Holy Spirit in our life. What does that mean to me? Well, it means that there are certain actions or maybe certain attitudes that we adopt that God just simply doesn't want to be a part of. He just doesn't want to hang out there. He's uncomfortable there. So, for example, some of you know that I'm a huge Chicago Bears fan. And the good news about being a Bears fan is it only takes about three weeks to realize they're not going to the Super Bowl this year. <laughs> so I get all the disappointment over in the first three weeks of the season. So that's kind of freeing in a sense, right? I feel sad for some of the other teams that are always holding out hope, like all you 49ers fans this year. It was excruciating all the way to the end, wasn't it? Not me. September 12th, I was done. <laughs> so there's freedom in that. But what I mean by that is, as a Chicago Bears fan, I really have no interest in hanging out with a Green Bay Packers fan club. You know what I'm talking about? As a Niners fan, you don't want to go into an Oakland Raiders or Los Angeles, whatever they are, Raiders, wherever they are today. You don't want to go into a Raiders fan club. Why? Well, first of all, you have no interest in it. And second of all, you're not welcome there. Isn't that true? See, that's God's spirit. Think about it. This is not hard, people. I remember when I first became a Christian, rededicated my life, we'll say, when I was 16, and I, and I, re, I went all in for God. And my, my brother was watching one of these, uh, what was it, the Freddy Krueger thing, the Friday the 13th. And I walked in it and I said, oh, I just, something inside of me didn't like it. And I, he says, what's wrong? I said, I don't know, I don't like it. And I walked out. And still to this day, if I see anything on TV, movies, I could, if it starts heading down this dark path, there's something inside of me that just goes off. It's like an alarm. 
I can't, I don't like it. It's depressing. It's dark. It's dreary. I think that's God. I think that's the Holy Spirit indicating. You do the same thing. You're at work and you hear a joke and the, and the joke starts going the wrong direction. And something starts going off inside of you. What is that? That's the Spirit of God. That's the Holy Spirit saying, I'm not a fan of that. I don't want to be a part of that. Let's get out of here. And you walk away. You can be nice about it. You don't have to be mean. Yeah. So there are things that can grieve and bring sorrow to God, actions and attitudes that don't reflect his character. He doesn't want to participate in that kind of stuff. Here's what Paul writes. I love this. He gives us some clarity in Ephesians 4, verses 30 to 32. He says, do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit. What's that say? By the way you live. Yeah. By the way you and I live. This is part of it. Remember, because he has identified you as his own. We belong to him. We're his cargo. He stamped us. Guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. There's the, that same word, guarantee, the stamp, sealed. So what do we do? Well, he says get rid of some things. Get rid of bitterness and, and rage and anger and harsh words and slander. As, as well as, in case you're not wondering, all types of evil behavior. He probably got tired of writing this, this, just all types. This, just put it all in there. All types of evil behavior. Verse 32, instead, here's what you should do. Well, now what? Get rid of everything. Now what do I do? Well, he says, instead, why don't you be kind to each other? Why don't you be tenderhearted? How about try forgiving one another? Uh, just as God, through Christ, forgave you. Why don't you start there? How about that? Start there. So you start doing these things, being kind, tenderhearted, forgiving. God's spirit says, oh, I'm a part, I'm a part of that. I'm a fan of those things. That's where I like hanging out. You start doing that, friend, I'm telling you, you will experience more of God in your life. So this passage, along with our 316 passage, reminds us that we are God's temple, and as his temple, we are to be set apart for his presence in our life. Now, on a side note, because I know some of you that come to Compass Church are like me, you're a little bit of a type A personality, you like to win, you don't like to lose, and so you're going to read this, you're going to go home, and you're going to try and fix everything tomorrow. Take it easy, relax, okay? God has a long tail on the kite of your spiritual development, okay? Just pick one item. Work on the one this week. Trade one out. Put one down, pick one up. You've heard me teach that before, right? Pick one, put one down, pick one up. Next week, try it again. If it takes you a month, it's okay. It takes you a month. Just keep moving forward. Pursue God with love, not out of an obligation. You understand what I mean by that? When you're pursuing God, do so out of love, not out of obligation. I like what pastor and author Adrian Rogers said. He said, discipline says I need to do this. Duty says I ought to do this. But devotion says I want to do this because I'm in love with the Lord. So there's a great spiritual confidence. There's a great spiritual discipline. And lastly, we should enjoy a great spiritual experience, a great spiritual experience. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? God's spirit dwells in you. What do I mean by that? Well, if you go through the Bible and you begin to understand how the Holy Spirit reveals himself and interacts with humanity, one of the things you'll notice is that the Holy Spirit is not timid. The Holy Spirit is not meek. The Holy Spirit is not weak. He's not shy. The prophets in the Old Testament spoke boldly. In fact, Ezekiel witnessed a vision of God's spirit reviving a valley of dry bones. That's pretty cool. 
John the Baptist preached about the Holy Spirit and baptizing people with fire. That's the language. Paul reminded Timothy that the Spirit instills power and love and self-discipline and not fear. God's not about that. You see, your life should radiate the presence of God. But some people ask, why don't I feel God's presence? I go about my day and my life seems to be full of everything around me. And I just don't seem to sense God in any sort of a particular way. Is there, is there something wrong with me? How come I keep missing out on the presence of God even though I'm really doing my best into putting away the old things and picking up the new things? Let me share a story with you that I think you may enjoy. After his decision to become a Christian, a young soldier, Nicholas Herman, decided to devote his life to following God and learning more about Jesus. He joined a monastery and he took the name Brother Lawrence. And there he spent the rest of his life working in a kitchen and repairing his brother's sandals. During his decades of doing seemingly menial jobs, Brother Lawrence discovered something. He discovered a profound truth about having a relationship with God. Experiencing his presence can and should happen everywhere. Though much of his life was spent serving others, the wisdom of Brother Lawrence gleaned from praying throughout each day has been inspiring Christians now for over 300 years. And his letters and discussions with peers were later compiled into a now classic book, The Practice of the Presence of God. It's a good read. You might want to get it. In one of his letters, he shares, After having given myself wholly to God, I began to live as if there was none but he and I in the world. Pretty powerful. In another letter, he writes, Sometimes I consider myself before God as a poor criminal at the feet of his judge. Yet other times I beheld him in my heart as my father, as my God. I worshipped him the oftenest as I could, keeping in mind in his holy presence and recalling it as often as I found it wandered from him. He practiced the presence of God every day. His book is a wonderful collection of the thoughts and the processes of a man who did indeed what I would say walked with God and practiced the presence of God daily. One thing that he found was that the journey of experiencing God's presence wasn't difficult. It was rather the difficult part was removing the obstacles along the road. That's what was paramount to his success. You see, it's like that for us too, I think. God's presence as a Christian is already within us. That's what the scripture tells us. That's what the promise of God's word says. That's what Jesus told us. So the question isn't about God's presence. The question is, are we listening to God? Or are we too full of the things of the world, of this life, that we leave no room for God? Are we too busy with the concerns of this life that we tune out the sound of God's voice? Or how about this one? Are we too active with the entertainment of this life that we simply need, leave no room in our schedule to meet with God? I fall victim to some of these. Maybe you have too. You see, the scripture illustrates that God leads his people when we connect with him. And you can have a great spiritual experience if you but spend time with God, learning to practice his presence. 
Because the Bible illustrates to us that God leads each and every one of us on a specific mission with special burdens upon our heart, things that he wants you and I to do as we engage more in his presence. And sometimes it's not always a big shout. Sometimes uh, there's no angel that shows up. There's no prophet that comes and gives you a word. You just have something in your heart that God lays upon your heart as you, as you spend more time with him. And you know God wants you to do this thing. Nehemiah wasn't commanded by God, did you know that, to rebuild Jerusalem's walls? The Bible just says he was moved by God who had put it into his heart to undertake the task. That's Nehemiah 2.12. Paul, when he visited Athens, he was simply stirred by the idolatry he witnessed. And it prompted him to remain there and preach the gospel. We find that Acts 17.16. We also know that Paul recognized a divine ambition. That's all it was for Paul. Romans 15, 20. A divine ambition to preach Christ in places where his name had not yet been proclaimed. So he touches a heart. He stirs your soul. He provides an ambition. But you know it's from God because you've been spending time with God. And you'll see that all throughout the biblical literature. That's how God used his people. It's been my experience that when we fill our life with the things unrelated to the kingdom of God, we crowd out or, or we displace the presence of God in our life. That's what I'm getting at here. Yet the opposite is true. When we open our life up by cleaning out these unrelated things, then we can sense God's presence in a more powerful way. I want to encourage you to flip the script in your life. Flip this around. Start ignoring the things of the world and start enjoying God's presence instead of not enjoying God's presence by embracing all the things of this world. Flip the script. So the question for all of us here today is, what should I clear out of my life so I can make room for more of God's presence? Look to your neighbor and say, oh no, now he's going to get personal. <laughs> is it an action? Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe for some of you, it's a relationship that's bringing you down, and you know it. Maybe it's a location. It's a place you visit or go to or go online. Hmm. These are some things that we need to start evaluating. Is it something else completely different? If so, if God's prompting you right now, and you know if he is, the Spirit of God's speaking to you, then take care of it today. Resolve to take care of it right now, right here in this place. Mark it down on your notes. Today, I, I'm not doing that any longer. Just write it down. Put that in your Bible. This is your day. You stake it in the sand. You put the flag in the ground. Boom. Because I want God's presence. I'm going to get rid of those things in my life. Don't delay. Don't wait. So this brings us to discover another one of God's attributes through his presence. As we've been studying the attributes of God, we've looked at five of them. Today, here's the sixth one. This week, we learn that God's uh, omnipresent in our life. God's omnipresent. So fill that into your notes. To say that God's omnipresent is to say that God is present everywhere at all times. And somebody once asked me, well, Pastor, how do I know I'm experiencing God's presence? And we just went through a whole teaching of that. But let me, let me just bring it down to one tiny little thing that you will know if you're experiencing God's presence. And here it is. You know you're experiencing God's presence when you have peace in your heart. Because God's presence will bring peace in any situation. Peace in the midst of the storm. Peace in the midst of a sunny day. Peace in the midst of doing menial tasks like Brother Lawrence explained. It doesn't matter. You have the joy of the Lord, the peace of God. 
And that's his promise, that we have God's presence, and his presence gives us peace in a messed up world. Let me ask you today, is your world messed up? Your individual world, your life, your surrounding, is your life coming apart at the seams? Maybe your marriage is on its last leg. You don't know what to do. Are you in a situation where all hope seems gone? You see, the Bible promises that when you and I call out to God, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand because his peace or his presence will guard your heart and guard your mind as you live in Christ Jesus. That's the peace that God gives us as believers. And unfortunately, this is a peace that many do not know in our world today. But it's a peace that's available to everybody. But I have to tell you this, this peace that guards your heart and your mind only comes when you have peace with God through salvation. The Bible teaches us this second kind of peace. And here it is. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God. Because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. You see, when you make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, you now have peace with God. And that peace with God then stays with you so you can have peace in any and all situations. But you have to make Jesus your Lord. What does that mean to make Jesus your Lord? It means he becomes the CEO of your life. He no longer is just the resident of your life. He's the president of your life. You go to him for all decisions you want to make. You base your life on his life. The Bible says that we deny ourselves and we pick up our cross and follow him. That's how the Bible describes it. You make him your Lord. You see, you can't experience God's peace until you have peace with God. So how do I find this peace? Because you may say to me, my story is too big, Pastor Todd. It's too ugly. It's, it's too deep. It's, it's, in a sense, it's hopeless. It's full of uh, moments of hatred. I'm scarred. I, I'm damaged. Would God even care to reach out to me? The image is seared in the mind. A nine-year-old girl running naked down a road screaming. Arms flailing, escaping a cloud of napalm. With a click... Nick Oot gave a human face to the horror of Vietnam. He photographed Kim Phan Thai as she and her friends fled from a South Vietnamese bombing raid. He took her to the hospital. Kim survived. As she tried to escape emotional and physical pain, she found that her family's Khao Dai religion failed to comfort her. The girl in the picture became an angry, resentful woman. She studied to be a doctor in the hopes to find a better day, but the government forced her to tour and speak about her ordeal. One day, while looking through books at Saigon Central Library, she stumbled on the New Testament. After thumbing through the Gospels, two things became clear to her. In her traditional religion, each path to salvation depended upon her efforts. But the Jesus that she read about could actually carry her. He too, like her, suffered. He too, like her, bore scars. But he had overcome. On Christmas Eve, she went to a church. And the pastor said, Christmas was not about the gifts that people give, but about the gift that God gave. Moved by that, she walked down the aisle and said a prayer and invited Jesus Christ to be her Lord and Savior. And in a moment's time, 
she found the peace that eluded her. She became a Christian. And so the next time you hear of this sad, painful image of war, you will know now how the story ended or how it continues. You see, you may be here and have scars, and those scars aren't visible, and your fight may not be seen by others, but maybe you're screaming and running on the inside. And the peace of God which transcends human understanding can reach below the scars to heal you today. If God can do it for Kim, then he most certainly can do it for you. The question for you is, would you like to receive that peace? If so, I'd like to introduce you to Jesus Christ to have him come heal your heart and put your feet on solid ground because like her, you're only a prayer away from the peace that only Jesus can bring. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we take a moment at the end of our service and we thank you for your word. We thank you for ministering to our hearts in only the way that you can. It's never the words of the pastor or the words of the preacher or the speaker. It's always the working of the Holy Spirit. As we open up your word and we explain and try to illustrate, but something's happened inside the heart of individuals because your spirit is working. In fact, there are some here today that you're working on right now to call them into a relationship with you. In fact, if you're here this morning, you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ and you feel that your life is like that story. You've been running, you've been hurt, you've been wounded, you've been searching and you cannot find relief. Today, my friend, you'll find your peace in Jesus Christ. And so why don't you just pray this prayer right where you sit, right in the quietness, quietness of this moment. Pray this simple prayer in your heart. Dear Jesus, I come before you today and I confess that I need you. Please forgive me for any of the things in my life that I have done to offend you. I know that my sin has separated me from you. But my life right now is scarred. It's, it's, it's far from you and I need your peace. So I invite you into my life today to be my savior and be my Lord. I want to be a Christian. I want to follow you. And I thank you for that now in your name. Father, wherever that prayer was prayed, whether in this room or one of our campuses or online, I pray right now as your word just promised us that the Holy Spirit infuses their life right now. And the angels of heaven surround them in the body of Christ as well. And we celebrate with them that they have become part of the family of God. That is exciting. And help us, Lord, to help them along the way. And we thank you for it now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.